The flight uh, we recently did, I was reviewing some of the video and my co-pilot's looking out the window. I pan back to the crate diagonally behind me. He's looking out through the crate, out through the window, and then the other guy across from him was half asleep looking out the window, so they seem to understand that something is happening. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, we'll hear about a pilot who flies up and down the East Coast with some precious cargo. When Paul Steklensky gets ready for a flight, he has to choose a co-pilot. The van will pull up or the people will come over and I'll have already picked prior who was going to be my co-pilot based on weight. And then I'll see this tiny little chihuahua who's just scared to death out of their mind. And I'm like, nope, you're going to sit next to me. That's right. Paul's co-pilots are rescue dogs. Comfort is key when we do these transports. It's not just about moving a dog from one place to another. You want to make them as comfortable as possible in the process. So if there's somebody who looks like they need the extra attention or the extra comfort, and I can do it safely with weight and balance, then that's who's going to sit next to me. Paul didn't always imagine himself 6,000 feet in the air with a bunch of animals. For most of his life, he didn't know much about dogs or about flying. But a few years ago, he started working on his pilot's license. In the very beginning, you know, flying a small airplane and going up for lessons, you don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of things that kind of throw you for a loop to the point where you kind of decide, do I even want to continue this? And there was one point where I had to ask myself that question because I was just being overwhelmed. And I decided, no, you know what, I've started this and I have to finish it and I'm going to see it through. Around the same time, Paul rescued a puppy, Tessa. You're getting this tiny little scared puppy and all of a sudden you're taking her away from the only family she's known. And then the bonding that you establish with this animal because you're suddenly the only thing they have, it's just really transformational and it was for me. Tessa's journey opened Paul's eyes to the world of animal rescue. And uh, if you're new to the process and you don't, you know, you don't really understand, you don't know there's this large network of uh, underground animal rescue that exists. So you just kind of know about the pet stores that you might hear advertised. And that was a a large education for me, was just the unfolding of that as we went through this process to find a dog. And she had come all the way up from Tennessee in a van with her siblings and her mom. So that was my real first, you know, exposure to animal rescue. Paul learned that Tessa's route was not out of the ordinary. In some states, there are more animals in need of a home for many reasons lack of affordable veterinary care, less stringent spay and neuter laws, higher rates of poverty, even natural disasters. So Tessa was probably brought to a state-run shelter. These are required to take in every animal. But there are no funds to expand facilities. To make space, animals that are sick or that have just been there for a while are euthanized. That's why these are also called kill shelters. Volunteer groups take these animals to states where they have a better chance at adoption. In my area, at least, you probably can't throw a rock without touching someone's property that, you know, has adopted an animal from the South. As I became closer to becoming a certificated pilot, I started to figure out, you know, what am I going to do after I obtain this? I can't just fly around for no reason. I need to have a purpose. You know, you have an ability now to do things that a lot of people don't. And I'm like, how can I use this, you know, in a good way? And then I stumbled upon the animal rescue and knowing, of course, that these animals need to be transported long, long distances sometimes to save their lives. 
it became a natural segue. Flying Fur was born. So Flying Fur literally is just the transport piece with the people in the south that pull from the high-kill shelters to get the animals to the no-kill shelters in the northeast. Paul usually fits 10 to 15 animals in the plane, and in the air, they seem at ease. Everybody's usually very calm. They either lay down, they take a nap. Um, Sometimes they'll sit up. I bet they're looking out the window like, oh, if I could put my head out that window, that's like ultimate. Yeah, right? (laughs) If we only knew what they were thinking. Some of my favorite photos that I ever capture are from the perspective of the dog and getting the back of their head as they're looking out the window. You know, it makes you happy because not only are you helping them get to a new place, they're not stuffed in the back of, you know, some dark, confined space to get there. They're they're able to, to enjoy the ride, if you will. And flying is just faster. I can't take a half a day off of work, drive to North Carolina, drive back, and get back to my home and eat dinner by 8 o'clock that night with a bus, whereas with an airplane, I can. Even though it's a more efficient way to transport animals, every flight is an adventure, and every co-pilot is different. The guy's sitting there, he's like a human. He's just sitting there perfectly upright. He was like a collie mix. The only thing he was missing was like a bow tie and a suit jacket. He was just so calm, collected, like a perfect little dog sitting there. And I had a mid-sized, I guess he was about a medium-sized dog in a crate directly behind me. And I don't know what what occurred leading up to it, but he definitely wasn't able to hold himself and uh, ended up going in his crate and did not want to stay in the crate with it. So he somehow stretched the crate opening in the front to where he was able to kind of pop the door open. Next thing I know, this guy's scrambling forward in between the pilot, co-pilot seat and uh, up onto the front seat. And I think the thing I'm most thankful for to this day is that this particular airplane has vinyl seats in it because his paws were just covered and he just got poop prints all over the place on the front seat, on the back of the seat, even on the operating handbook for the airplane. And I'm looking around at all this and we're like six or 7,000 feet. I'm like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? You know, like there's nothing you can do at the time. You're just like, I hope they never, you know, I hope they don't ban me from the airport after this because I've got to clean this airplane up. So we, uh, we got him to where he was going. That's happened on more than one flight now. That was definitely the poopy pod flight. And uh, I think the most rewarding thing that day that I remember was getting him and everybody else out of the airplane. And, I'm, you know, it was, it was a tough day. I think we had turbulence. We had, we had a little bit of everything. And now I've got an airplane that's got dog crap all over it that I've got to clean up. It's not even my airplane. And... One of the volunteers' uh, daughters comes up to me and she's wearing this little pink jacket. She's got a little pink hood on. And all the animals are unloaded and she comes up and she's just holding this tray of cupcakes and she hands it right to me. And I think at that moment, everything just melted. Like all of the stress and strain and everything I'd gone through that day had just fallen apart. And here's this little girl with this big tray of cupcakes who just wanted to thank me for, uh, for the animal rescue. I got myself back in the plane and uh, cupcakes alongside and we got back to my home airport which was a short hop away and I went in and I scrambled and I got some cleaners and paper towels and I'm out there and I'm wiping everything down and thank god it's in the middle of the winter right because if it was in the middle of summer and this airplane was going back out for rental you know within a few hours I'm like god how are you going to get to smell a dog out of here that quick but you know at the end of the day it doesn't really matter it's uh, you know you've saved another life. The thing I do remember too, and I still have the photograph, is after he got out of the crate and there's the poop prints everywhere and he has, he's all curled up in a little ball and he's sleeping and he has one paw on my leg. Sometimes dogs escape before even getting on the plane. 
So Ashes was a feisty little one that we were uh, getting ready to load last, and he was just rambunctious, kind of high energy. And the driver was letting him out of his crate in the car, trying to get him into our crate for the aircraft, and he got loose. He was running down the taxiway, and then we take off after him, and he literally runs the entire length of the runway, and then goes off into like a, a water you know, system, uh, like a swampy area at the end of the airport, and then just disappears. Up to this flight, that had never happened before, so I was just mortified. You know, we've never lost an animal. And uh, we went down, we looked for him, searched for him, spent maybe an hour or so, and then time was burning, and I'm like, I have to go. I didn't want to, but I didn't have a choice. I had all these other animals, you know, ready to go. A lot of the groups that I had worked with that were local to that area started coming out. They were camping out, looking for him around the airport. He would be spotted here and there. They put up posters. This went on for a few days, and I want to say it was maybe three to four days in. I flew back down, spent a Sunday afternoon down there with them, hunting for him, and uh, he had been sighted around again, but we just couldn't get close enough to him to do anything, and then he disappeared again. I was ready to take about a week of vacation and go down there, you know, put my Enduro motorcycle in the back of my pickup, and I was going to camp out at this airport until I found him. I said, this has never happened, and I'm not going to let it end this way. After several days, Ashes was found sleeping on somebody's porch. But before Paul could fly him north, one of the volunteers decided to adopt him. She has him to this day now back in North Carolina, so his trip north was not to be. He ended up staying. Didn't need the flight after all. <laughs> Did not need the flight. And I tell you what, we put a lot of time and energy and resources into finding him. And, uh, you know, I would do it all over again. For a while, Paul had been renting planes, but he eventually decided that Flying Fur needed its own aircraft. I looked at a lot of different airplanes and I put everything on paper because I didn't really care about anything but specifications. You know, how many animals can I get in it? How fast can I go? How much fuel is it going to use per hour? Um, I'd go up to airplanes with tape measures and, and measure all of these things because that's all that really mattered. The plane that came out on top was from the 1970s, small and fast. But it does have its downsides. Because of its small size, Paul flies by Virtual Flight Reference, or VFR, which means he's navigating by sight, using the horizon line, buildings, or terrain landmarks. He doesn't have any special tools that larger planes use to stay on course and track weather patterns. We were going down to Virginia, Richmond Executive Airport, and there was a storm system that was due to move in through the area up our way um, somewhere after the 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I was down in Virginia around noon, so I'm thinking, you know, we're going to have plenty of time because the last thing you want to do is get yourself trapped somewhere with a plane full of animals. We had perfect conditions leaving Virginia, and uh, I must have neglected to check the complete path return before I departed as far as weather changes, because what was forecast to come through much later came through much sooner. And before I knew it, I was kind of smack in the middle of it. And I was stuck in between layers of rain clouds to the point where I was losing my own contact with the ground. And under VFR flying conditions, you never want to do that. You always want to maintain your visual reference to the ground. As Paul was blinded in the clouds, an air traffic controller radioed him with a warning. He was about to enter a restricted airspace near Washington, D.C. At this moment in my life, right now, that is the last concern I have. You know, I'm like, I'm ready to ditch this thing in a field if I have to to save these animals. The last thing I'm worried about is wandering somewhere I'm not supposed to because I can't see where I'm going anyway. 
As he barreled through the storm, another air traffic controller in Philadelphia came on the airwaves. And the controller immediately realized, you know, the gravity of the situation and just put all of his, you know, attention and focus into getting me on the ground safely. And uh, we were looking for different areas where I could get the airplane down based on the weather system. I was kind of flying in this eye of the storm, if you will, and I just kept moving the airplane with this as, as it moved. So I had to basically take the airplane and rather fly around the weather, you know, take the airplane and fly with the weather until we got to an area or an airport where I could set it down safely. Eventually, Paul was able to land, relieved to be on solid ground. That was a very tough day, and that was one that was eye-opening, because that, that literally could have been the difference between life or death that day. And one of the neatest follow-ups to that story was uh, at a farmer's market we were at some time after that. You know, I have these coloring books for sale and stuff, flying for coloring books, and this gentleman comes up, and, you know, he introduces himself, and it was him and his son, and it was the controller, you know, that day that had, you know, safely gotten me to the ground. So that was, that was very cool. I get a lot of credit for what I do, but I couldn't do what I do if it wasn't for so many people in the background that do their part from start to finish. Sort of like uh, Charlie's Angels, this one woman I work with, Kristen, for the first two years or so, we communicated purely by text, like I had never actually met her in person. I call it the underground because I don't think that most people going out to adopt really even know a lot of this exists, right? They don't realize how many people are putting in their time and effort and their own money to save these animals from these shelters. I mean, if the people that I worked with didn't do it, these animal centers would just be euthanizing so many animals on a regular basis. Flying fur is only the transit portion of an animal's journey, but their time in the air matters. The flight uh, we recently did, I was reviewing some of the video and my co-pilot's looking out the window. I pan back to the crate diagonally behind me. He's looking out through the crate, out through the window, and then the other guy across from him was half asleep looking out the window. So they seem to understand that something is happening. Um, you can definitely see and sense the tone and the calmness as they know that things are changing, that they're changing for the better. Um, sometimes when you land, it's funny, some of the dogs that didn't want to get into the crates, they don't want to get out. You know, you have to kind of coax them out because they've, they've kind of gotten into that space and they feel comfortable now and they want to come out. It's not easy and uh, it's taken time for me to even be able to, you know, as, as time has gone on, it's certain ones are even a little less difficult to talk about. But yeah, it, it can be, uh, it's very emotionally draining at times as well. You know, we had one dog, um, it was a tough one. His name was Henley, and he had been abused, uh, we believe, by male, because at the time we went to pick him up, I couldn't even be near him. As he, They brought him around the side of the vehicle to bring him to the airplane. He just started shrieking when he saw me. And to have an animal that scared and terrified of, of someone that doesn't even know just because of who you were, you know, being a male, that was really hard. But what I remember about that flight is when we got into New Jersey later that evening, and we got it unloaded, you know, and the, the ladies came over, I had to step away. And they got him all, you know, harnessed up and, and walked him over. You know, he got maybe 20 feet and he stopped and he just turned back and looked at me. I've never forgotten that. Our storyteller was Paul Steklensky. Flying Fur celebrated its three-year anniversary in May 2018. 
Paul has made more than 110 flights and rescued over 1,000 animals. You can see some adorable pictures of Tessa and other flying fur passengers at our website, humannaturepodcast.org. I'm Caroline Ballard. This story was produced by August Law and Tressa Versteg. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Aaron Jones. And our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.